Good morning, evening, and welcome to episode 58 of The Solid 60. It's I, your host, Patrick, and we're just going to run through a few articles. That's what I do now. I found that's the most fun way to do it for me. I don't read them beforehand. I just discover and go on the journey along with you. Today, 7th of the 7th in 2019, still living my best life as a 40-year-old by myself in Blacktown. About to move, got two weeks before the official handover to the new, slightly smaller apartment, well, granny flat next door. So that helps. All I have to do is throw everything over the fence. Uh, I haven't exactly been approved yet. I've done all the application stuff, sent the documents, finally got the application filled out and uh, scanned into a PDF because I just could not make it into the real estate office in time. One of the downsides I guess of doing 13 or 14 hours a day which has caught up with me but thankfully this was the first weekend I had off for a couple of weeks where I could actually just sleep in yesterday, sleep in kind of this morning. It's a bit hard when you're used to getting up at five so for me seven-ish is still like whoa where did the day go? I did get to see kids this weekend so that helped. I saw Spider-Man yesterday, had a good time with that. I'll probably give more of a review um, on the next episode of Banana Split, which hopefully we'll record next week. I do have last week still to edit, and that was a lot of fun, so I'll look forward to doing that, <laughs> squeezing that in over the week. I definitely want to have that done and up online before we record a new one, that's for sure. So depending on how much time I get after work, that will happen eventually. Uh, but yeah, let's let's move into it. I don't really have much else to say on a social, personal level. I haven't been working out, obviously. That's uh, we're a long way off that. So much going on. I got accepted last minute for Smash as media, so that's good. I finally paid for the domain hosting thing with Beyond Cosplay, so that's back up. And applied for a media pass for Oz Comic Con, which hopefully I'll get. I uh, didn't even bother with Supernova. And yeah, still had a good time, but I've met one of the management people and it just, it's just all really weird and like um, not that I expect them to fall over backwards for me but they're just quite closed and hard to figure out like what's going on there what's the deal how how do you be so standoffish I guess they have a lot of people coming at them and for the wrong reasons and uh, trying to get free shit so whereas me it's not so much about well, just saving $40 it's more I'm curious about the whole operation how it works it must be a dream job basically uh, running around the country setting up these things and being able to hang out and market them just con- that's your job you just do that like a year-round con almost if you go to every single one you're constantly working on it there, there's probably I've never counted but there's one in most capital cities uh, two in Brisbane I mean Queensland so yeah they're pretty busy and uh, I can't think of realistically a, a, a job I could do and do all right at Uh, that would be better I mean obviously the real dream is being in film but I think I've missed that boat unless I suddenly do like a midlife change pivot around and somehow find a new lease on life I might have to take a lot of acid or something to just have one of those real like uh, the word I'm looking for is an epiphany I need one of those and then to actually wake up the next morning and keep it rolling and do something about it and and I still think there's a key bit of knowledge missing there and how to make the first moves and you know come up with a story and meet the right people there's a lot of factors that need to come into play and I guess I am coasting a little by just getting up and doing the job that's in front of me but 
yeah, there's still a slight hope that um, one day it's just going to happen, which isn't exactly how that works. I know, I know, it's, it, you're going to have to try harder. But until then, I've got kids to look after and try to do the best I can for them. And in the meantime, when I'm not with them, try and make it as interesting as possible by doing things like reading this article in front of me, which is called Resolved Debate is Stupid. Wow. That is correct, and there is no counter-argument. Debate is indeed very stupid. I'm hoping that's kind of an ironic title, but we'll see that where they go with this. It's written by Aisling McCree. I think I read one of her articles last time, or it's just found on the same website from another article. But I like where it's going. It's a catchy, clickbait almost title. Let's see if they can back it up with some unconventional wisdom. I still remember the first debate I ever did. It was in a high school classroom that smelled of deodorant. Our school ran a debate club on and off throughout my adolescence, and I love the idea of taking part ever since I first saw a session in 8th grade. As a dorky 11-year-old drowning in a sweater I was supposed to grow into, I sat in the back of the audience enthralled. The debaters were all much older than me and used a lot of big words like the smarter adults I knew and wanted to be. Five years later I was 16, very confident in my intelligence and very insecure about everything else. Still hadn't grown into that sweater. A classmate decided to start up the debate club again, and I pounced on the opportunity to join. Our first subject was reinstating the death penalty, and I was anti, since we were young and sincere, we all picked the sides we really believed in. One of the people on the pro side is now a cop. For our opening speech, I gave all the points you would expect in an argument against the death penalty, the unacceptably high rate of false convictions, the particular targeting of non-white defendants, the cost, the cruelty, the lack of data proving its effectiveness as a deterrent. My opponent's speech was much shorter. He simply named three famous child killers, including one who had murdered someone three miles from our school, and said, Do you think these people deserve to live? My opponent won. To understand why debate is inadequate to the task of our current moment, one needn't look no further than the Monk Debate, a biannual event held in Toronto in which well-known academics, pundits and policymakers argue about controversial statements in a modern-day gladiatorial battle. Most recently, the resolution was the future of America is populist, not liberal. Squaring up against each other were the notorious ex-White House strategist and jacuzzi ruiner Steve Bannon, and guy who coined axis of evil but is somehow now in the resistance David Frum. There was now an outcry over the decision to give Bannon yet another platform, but for supporters of this type of event, scandal is a sign of success. After all these days, we are constantly being told that one of the top threats to society is not climate change or fascism, but people stifling debate. Some claim that by no platforming, controversial speakers or calling pundits mean names on Twitter after they say something racist on Bill Maher's show, we are facilitating a dangerous slide into illiberalism. If those pearl clutches are to be believed, the key to becoming a society of informed and sophisticated intellectuals is to hook ourselves up to an ivy of pure debate and let the heated repartee course through our veins until it leads us to fact-based solutions. As it turns out, the debate didn't go so well for fans of liberalism. Frum himself tried to make sense of it in a post-mortem published in The Atlantic, scratching his head at the wreckage he and Bannon had left behind. At first, the post-debate polling suggested that Bannon had won the hearts and minds of the audience, with 57% taking his side by the end, compared to 28% at the start. Later, the Monk debate officials issued a correction, stating that the audience voted exactly the same at the start and the end, which by debate rules is considered a draw. The situation remains somewhat unclear, but we know this much. Best case scenario. From 
got onto a stage with a person who appeals to humanity's grossest instincts, believing he could defeat those instincts with knowledge, reason, and enlightenment values, and he didn't move the needle in the slightest. These days, we are constantly being told that one of the top threats to society is not climate change or fascism, but people-stifling debate. Admittedly, debates can produce some pretty entertaining clips of people you don't like getting owned. Peewee Republican Charlie Kirk's explosive anger at being asked his salary is objectively funny. And depending on the format, debates can sometimes be well-paced, reasonably fair, and introduce you to new information. A recent debate at Pomona College between Dan Mitchell of the Libertarian Cato Institute and Nathan J. Robinson of the socialist magazine Current Affairs is an example of a calm, well-moderated discussion in which both parties had the space to explain themselves. Perhaps this has something to do with the fact that this event was intended for a small audience and seemingly recorded and uploaded as an afterthought rather than expressly for the plentiful YouTube money that rains down on any right-wing pundit who finds an audience of excitable young reactionaries craving edgy video content. But any form of debate is inherently flawed. The aim of debate is not to provide a detailed, cogent and well-sourced answer to the question at hand. The aim of debate is to be the most convincing, not the smartest, and anyone who's good at debating knows this. This is how former Breitbart scribe Ben Shapiro has a reputation as an intellectual warrior when his arguments mostly consist of saying incorrect things very fast. This is why conservative political commentator Stephen Crowder has a series called Change My Mind in which he ambushes random college kids with a big binder full of pre-prepared talking points and pulls a mic away from them any time they seem like they might actually change someone's mind. This is how a court of murder pedophiles got my high school audience on side better than my scribbled stats on deterrence rates did. People, yes, even you, do not make decisions on an entirely rational basis. An audience is more easily won over with a one-liner that inspires applause or laughter than a five-minute explanation of a complicated phenomenon. A false statistic repeated confidently will be more convincing than a truth stated haltingly by some guy you've never heard of and you've already decided you don't like because he's arguing against the guy you came to see. Massively complex ideologies with hundreds of years of scholarship behind them are reduced to a couple of fast-talking egos in dockers thinking about the best way to make their opponent look like a dumbass. Debate is not politics, it's theatre. Real learning is hard. It's a slow, confusing process where you sometimes have to read long books with dreadful covers and look at footnotes and shit. It requires us to recognise and then overcome our biases as best we can. It can take years to learn what we really think and why, and then if we get a lingering feeling we might be wrong, it can take years to unlearn and start all over. Debate, in contrast, offers us an easy way out. Some dudes spouting their favourite buzzwords in each other's vicinity make us feel smart and engaged. Like wearing that fresco of the Greek men they put on all the philosophy textbooks. Small aside, have you ever noticed how in this image all the female figures look thoroughly sick of these guys? However, the format of debate, which is supposed to represent the height of intellectual tradition, encourages us instead to applaud the candidate who is best at using simple rhetoric, looking suave and machine-gunning irrelevant lines at their brow-beaten interlocutor. I know I'm saying that wrong, but I like it. These are all things that real intellectual inquiry is supposed to look beyond. Do not be tempted by the promise of easy satisfaction. Watching a debate can make you actively worse at understanding the nuances of a topic. If you want to really know about a subject, here's my advice. Read widely and extensively, and not just the books your favourite YouTuber recommends. Talk to people patiently 
and fairly rejecting your instinctual desire to win. Perhaps most importantly, and take this from a veteran, do not reward former debate team kids with your attention. They are the worst type of nerds they never share their snacks. Aisling McCree is a freelance writer, researcher, and graduate student with a background in law and international relations, and I like the cut of her jib. Assuming it's a her. It's not really clear. Does not uh, give any clue, which is cool. Who needs to know? It's not really important at this point. In that article, you don't really need to know. So that's that. That's interesting. Now, I've got some trivia for Westworld I've had sitting there for a long time. There's quite a bit of it, so I might just run through that quickly. Well, it's almost nine o'clock, but that's okay. It won't take long at all. I really need to do it. And I've seen both seasons. There's a third one that won't be out for another year. They always do that. Uh, A good show will make you wait, and you'll just happily sit there and suck it up until it barges through the door. So the first bit of trivia, which some uh, happy contributor has thrown up uh, amongst 95 other items, is that Ben Barnes, who plays Logan, which is the uh, drug-addled son of the guy that ends up buying the entire outfit, or at least you know a significant amount of shares in it for his own legacy reasons. I think it's, I'm still I've seen both seasons, but I'm still a bit slow and uh, not quite up on really why they're uh, doing all this. I th- spoilers here, of course. Basically, other than being a theme park, they're trying to essentially for really, really rich people, provide a service where you can upload your consciousness into one of these things and you can essentially live forever. Uh, But they just never quite got it right. Ben Barnes broke his foot before arriving to the first day of shooting, being afraid of losing the job. He didn't tell anyone and just used the limp to look like a character choice. He then had to maintain that limp throughout all the filming. That's kind of cool. Writer and producer, direct Jonathan Nolan, describes the show as the next chapter of the human story in which we stop being protagonists. I like it. That's very true. The quote, these violent delights of violent ends, is from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. The modern songs heard in the Mariposa Saloon are the idea of writer, producer, and director Jonathan Nolan. Why are they, are they going to put that in every time? Nolan uh, explained that the covers are remind people that the world is a theme park and that everything is scripted. I just think it's really cute. It's one of those piano things that plays itself. Early on in the series, Bernard and uh, Dolores... So he hands her a copy of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. She reads a passage aloud. Much of her dialogue thereafter is similar to Alice in the book, as well as the overall theme of questioning one's reality. At one point in the book, she exclaims, I wonder if I've been changed in the night. Let me think, was I the same when I got up this morning? I almost think I can remember feeling a little different. But if I'm not the same, the next question is, who in the world am I? Ah, that's the great puzzle. Yeah, that, see, that's intelligent writing. They just throw so many details in there. You'll only pick up if you follow every rabbit hole to its conclusion. In one scene, a character refers to the only rule of Westworld being that you cannot die. The name of the company that runs Westworld is Delos, which is the name of a Greek island known for the earliest case of prohibition death, political social phenomenon and taboo, in which a law is passed stating that it is illegal to die. See, it's another deep cut. Jonathan and Lisa wanted to give the series a Blade Runner feel and wanted to make the series much darker and more cerebral than the original Westworld. Well, they certainly do that in the third season, by the look of it, which has the guy from Breaking Bad, Jesse. I can't remember the actor's name right now, but uh, it'll come up. Uh, season 1, Episode 3, they mentioned that the guests pay $40,000 a day. That's uh, not cheap. He took inspiration from video games like Bioshock, Red Dead Redemption, The Elder Scrolls Skyrim to deal with the narrative's moral component on a spectrum. 
Well, that needs unpacking. In the below ground storage area for decommissioned Android, you can see a globe statue. An identical one was on display in the arrival area of Future World, sequel to Westworld, hinting that the older areas of the original park have been abandoned. In fact, if you look closely, you can see the word Delos spelled out along the circumference, the name of the company. So I don't think they're like, yeah, it's in the same world. They're just like, these are cute little nods to the original movies, which I still haven't seen. It'd be nice to watch them and, and see if I can notice anything. Uh, connective tissue. When you see the original gunslinger in the basement, the background music and noise is from Westworld 73. Uh, again, there's another bit there. The repetitive three chord phrase often heard in the background music comes from Westworld, the original, where it underscored the gunslinger's slow but relentless pursuit of the hero. The man in black's unusual pistol is a rare Lamatt 1861 revolver. It features a nine shot 42 caliber cylinder with an additional single shot 20 gauge shotgun barrel. While the real Lamatt was a notoriously unreliable, a presumably perfected version would give its owner a serious firepower advantage over a typical Wild West six shooter. Sure would. You got a shotgun and a uh, nine shots. You're going to kick some ass, which is what he does, like almost ridiculously so, against professional soldiers with modern weapons in some cases. At a distance. Like, come on, man. Warner Brothers has been trying to remake Westworld since the 90s. In 96, Michael Crichton, the writer and director of the movie, met with J.J. Abrams, wanting him to write the screenplay, but Abrams was unable to come up with the way he thought it worked. Joel Silver, in 2000, was announced to be working on a remake. Silver hired Richard Video to write the screenplay. 2002, Schwarzenegger was announced to star and produce in the movie, uh, and Michael Ferris and John Brancanto were writing a screenplay. So Schwarzenegger subsequently left when he was elected governor. In 2005, Tarsem Singh was announced as the director. In 2007, Quentin Tarantino claimed he'd been offered the movie. In 2008, Billy Ray was hired to write a new screenplay. Not sure who that is. I've got to get to know not writers' names. Hopefully reading a lot of these things will help with that. In 2013, Abrams pitched the idea of a TV series to Nolan and Lisa Joy. As Nolan told Deadline, JJ came to Lisa and me with the suggestion that Westworld wasn't to be realised as a movie, since it had been ripped off so many times and inspired a number of science fiction films, rather a television series from the robot's point of view. And hey, talking. The first one song played by the player piano is Black Hole Sun. After filming the sixth episode production shut down for two months, according to HBO, this was done to give the creative team more time to prepare the last episodes. The train arriving is set on a flatbed truck driving up and down State Route 128 in Utah. So when a character is looking out the window, they're actually looking at the Utah landscape, not a green screen. The showrunners chose Utah as they wanted it, the show and the park to have the feel of the vast landscapes. And somehow that's on an island as well. So the amount of money it would cost to do that, like in the show, the reality is that they've got some island in the middle of nowhere near China, apparently, and they could just recreate Utah. Um, I'd love to know how easy that would be. The first season was a massive success and averaged 11.7 million viewers per episode. So that's good to know that quality can be rewarded. Even complicated, convoluted, ridiculously high concept stuff like this. In the unaired pilot, Miranda Otto played a character named Virginia Pittman. The producers reconceived the role and Otto left the show. Oh, she's a good actress. She was replaced by Sidzer Babbitt Knudsen with the character now named Teresa Cullen. Well, now I have to look up who that is because the name obviously doesn't ring a bell. 
like yeah she's just like she's really cool she's the one that's kind of dating Bernard in the beginning doesn't last forever unfortunately the photograph of Juliet Williams fiance and eventual wife is actually a stock photo of Times Square oh yeah okay that's a real stock photo that's cool that's the one where he uh, breaks down a bit and he's sitting there like what is this and they turf off her first father when interrogating hosts in the repair center, Westworld technicians frequently use verbal commands derived from computer software debugging. The commands step into and resume are used to arbitrarily run specific sections of a program's source code and examine the results one at a time. To avoid the production delays experienced in Season 1, the whole second season was written in advance and scenes from different episodes were shot in a row based on the location and actors and actresses' availability. Well, that's a bit smarter. The use of player piano throughout the series appears to reference Kurt Vonnegut. In his first novel, Player Piano, it described a dystopian future in which almost every aspect of human life is automated. In his novel, the protagonist rails against a life devoid of purpose or choice, thanks to the ubiquity of machines. The reality outside the confines of Westworld, to which has been alluded, is a similar world, where the mundane daily tasks of life has been automated and where there is no unemployment. However, one of the guests complains that This has left a world where humans have no agency. No wonder Westworld's popular. During the final episode of the first season, the player piano music that plays over Ford's final speech is Radiohead's Exit Music. It was written for Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. This show has made several references over the course of the first season to Romeo and Juliet, including the idea of faked or impermanent deaths as a plot twist, the fact that various characters often repeat the line, these violent delights of violent ends, which is from Act 2, Scene 6. The name Dolores is derived from a Spanish reference to the Virgin Mary, La Virgen de los Dolores, meaning the Virgin or Our Lady of Sorrows. Dolores in Spanish means sorrows or pain originating from the Latin word dolor, also meaning pain. The man in the circle in the opening sequence is a reference to the Vitruvian Man by Leonardo da Vinci. The saloon is one of the sets at Melody Ranch Motion Picture Studio in Newhall, California. Now that got burnt down, that'll probably be here soon. The way the horse is moving in the opening sequence is a reference to The Horse in Motion by Edward Moybridge. Moybridge? Anyway, some painting. Uh, in the original gunslinger dressed all in black, it was Yul Brynner. He was the cyborg, and Richard Benjamin was the human guest. In this show, they've flipped that, with Ed Harris being the human gunslinger and James Marsden as the cyborg. James Marsden, I wouldn't really call him the hero. He's one of many. During times of danger in the show, there's a series of two notes that are played on a natural scale from middle E to middle D sharp for all you mis- music aficionados out there uh, the, those two notes are famous in the western genre of movies particularly known as the first two notes from Man with the Harmonica which was the theme of the character known as Harmonica who's played by Charles Bronson in the classic Once Upon a Time in the West now, some scenes were filmed at Paramount Ranch it's been used by Paramount Pictures since 1923 Filming for episode 1 took place during a 22-day period in August 2014, well that's a while ago, um, in and around LA and Utah. The two technicians Felix and Sylvester are named after the two animated cats of the same names. Felix is the nice one, that's uh, Leonardo Nam, he tries to save a dead bird. Sylvester is the nasty one, he thinks it's a waste of time. The bird even bites Sylvester when he tries to catch it. There's a deeper level also, Sylvester isn't mean just because he is a cat or human. Felix proves that. In the first episode, Dr. Ford engages in conversation with one of the first now defunct robots to occupy Westworld. 
the robot was played in a cameo by heavily made-up Michael Wincott, who appeared as serial killer Ed Gain opposite Hopkins in Hitchcock, 2012. That's cute. The set, which was used for Escalante, including the western town, yep, destroyed by the largest wildfire in California. That was in November last year. The only building to survive was the white church built specifically for the show. Well, that player piano rolled in the opening sequence as well as various episodes were custom made for the show. Well, of course, because they're doing modern songs. In season two, episode 10, the passenger of the light fixtures in the Forge Library are the spinning orb from the introduction credits on Game of Thrones. The same orb also appeared in the Citadel Library on Game of Thrones. There you go. Didn't know there was a connection with that show. Arnold Schwarzenegger had watched Westworld, the movie, and studied Yul Brenner's performance in preparation for playing the Terminator. Nice. Westworld was Michael Crichton's first story about a theme park that goes wrong. The better known was, of course, Jurassic Park. In that movie, Sir Richard Attenborough played the inventor of the park. In this series, the inventor was played by Sir Anthony Hopkins, who has appeared in five movies directed by Attenborough. It's a small world. The Westworld Park is set in the 1870s. This becomes clear in Season 2 when Dolores is at Fort Forlorn, inside which is stationed the U.S. Army's 25th Infantry Regiment, as evident by the flags in the fort. The 25th was stationed in various places in Texas and New Mexico for the entire 1870s until they were transferred to Dakota Territory in 1880. In the beginning of Season 1, Episode 8, when Maeve is speaking with New Clementine, the song playing is The House of the Rising Sun by The Animals. I've got to stop reading those ones out. Like, who cares? Unless you're a music buff, um, I'm not going to know what that is unless I go look it up and listen to it. Although the time of the series is never stated, the dates seem to work for it to be a true sequel to Westworld. The movie was released in 1973, but it was set in 1983. Yeah, I, I still don't buy that. It's too much retconning. I, I've got to see the original. I don't. That might help, but I just doubt it. You know, the way they set it all up, that doesn't make any sense. The taxidermied water buffalo head, which hangs above the bar, is an African Cape water buffalo, not related to the American species bison, which is commonly called American buffalo. In season one, all but one episode was certified 15 M rated. Only episode five was 18 plus. Oh, there you go. Must have been more nudity in that one. In Dr. Robert Ford, Anthony Hopkins' office, he has a section of war covered in faces. This could be a reference to Game of Thrones. In that show, the faceless man of the house of black and white have a room where they keep the faces of the victims that their many-faced god has told them to kill. Yeah, maybe. It's a stretch. It's probably just a coincidence, but it's a pretty cool one. In Season 1, Episode 4, Dissonance Theory, William and Logan storm into a ranch that's been taken over by thieves and bandits. The wood stove clearly says Indianapolis, which refers to a company located in Indianapolis, a real company which made wood stoves like the one seen in the show. However, this model was... This isn't real deep diving here. However, this particular model with the side flu feature wouldn't have been made until later in the 1800s, possibly early 1900s. However, it doesn't matter since the setting of the town is fictional, so it doesn't have to be that historically accurate. Yeah, I mean, the guys that made the iron put it together probably didn't dig that deep. She can get away with it. Still work. Luke Hemsworth is the older brother of Chris and Liam Hemsworth. So Anthony Hopkins and Tessa Thompson appeared in Thor with Chris Hemsworth and Luke having a cameo. Jeffrey Wright also starred in The Hunger Games alongside Liam Hemsworth. So there's a lot of... They all know each other. It's all one big happy family. Dr. Robert Ford has the same last name as the real-life movie director John Ford, who was famous for making westerns. Amongst them, My Darling Clementine, Clementine being the name of one of the characters on his show. 
the name of the character Arnold in turn bears likeness to Jack Arnold, a movie director famous for making science fiction movies. Dr. Robert Ford's name is also the same as the cow that killed Jesse James. Well, I mean, they could have used it as a reference to the director. That's a pretty common name. Uh, there were so many westerns made. You could find lots of stuff like that. It's like numerology. On this show, a robot bad guy villain carries a Winchester model 1892 Maris leg rifle as his main weapon and a rifle holster on his back. The rifle has been modified with more modern touches, but it's basically the same model that Steve McQueen used on Wanted Dead or Alive. Cool. Ed Harris also had an early brief role as a morgue attendant in Coma, written and directed by Michael Crichton. Coma was also adapted for television 2012 by Tony and Ridley Scott. Well, I've got to check that out. It might be good. Anything, Michael Crichton's a bit like the Stephen King uh, in the sense that so many of his books are made into film and TV. But he just didn't quite last as long. He's uh, not with us anymore, unfortunately. The clue to the fact that we're viewing different time frames in the, is the logo of Westworld itself. In the timeline of the present day, the W has straight lines, like we see in the TV show logo. However, in the timeline of William and Logan, the Westworld W is curvy. It's noticeable when Bernard goes into the sub-basement to access the computer, the logo displayed on the computer is the older style. It's very common for companies to update and change their logos and slogans every so often, so it's a subtle hint to the viewers. So I've got to look out for that on a rewatch. Jimmy Simpson, William, figured out his character's true identity early in the series, when the makeup department started making him look like someone else. He studied Ed Harris's scenes and mimicked some details of his performance. Conversely, Ed was not conformed of the character's relationship until it was in the script and Jimmy's William didn't influence his man in black at all. It's good to know. Sort of a one-way street there. Smart Jimmy. During a July 2017 roundtable, Jeffrey Wright said he was only told a big secret twist in Lowe's first season storyline on the morning of the day when he showed up to shoot the scene. He said, I don't think it would have been possible with this uh, to have known the truth about Lowe all along. What's interesting about the show is that there was this big reveal, but if you look back, You'll see these breadcrumbs that are now more fluorescent, that were already there, just subtle hints of where it was going. Interestingly, during an interview year earlier, uh, Wright contradicted his own version of these events, saying instead that the writers had told him Bernard was not human in the middle of rehearsals for episode two. Who knows what the truth is? The series takes many cues from modern gaming. Side quests, non-player characters on a storyline loop, level difficulties, the further out you go, the tougher the encounters are. Easter eggs, one guess uses the actual term. Equipment upgrades, character selection, William's preparation before entering the park. Player styles such as the man in black as completionist. Uh, I loved all that stuff. One of the main reasons why Anthony Hopkins agreed to take on the role was that he was only going to be contracted for one year. He was told that from the beginning, his character wouldn't survive this season. <laughs> He's certainly around in season two, so I guess they just shot a lot of extra stuff for him to come back. The first villain met well, like a lot of that was with the other characters, so I don't know. I guess he just stuck around. The name of the character played by Sir Anthony Hopkins is the name of the coward who shot Jesse James. Well we know that already. Don't these people read these before putting their own two cents in? In addition, Jesse James and this show's Dr. Robert Ford were shot through the back of the head, so that's a bit more detail and that's worth throwing in. The first villain mentioned is Hector Eschaton. In Greek Eschaton means last. New Testaments, it is used to refer to the last day. The end of the world, the end of things, stop. 
So Hector's surname hints at the apocalypse, towards which the series is building pretty much. Yeah. When Dolores speaks with the man in black in the second season finale, she describes when giants had roamed the land, but are now just bones and amber. It's a reference to the origins of Jurassic Park, where dinosaurs were developed from ancient mosquitoes. The novel, Jurassic Park, yes we know, it was written by the same guy who wrote this. Many, if not all, of the host names are in some way significant and it gives all the same meanings that we've already read. Uh, after Logan joins forces with the Confederados and captures William, uh, Jimmy Simpson, and Dolores, Evan Rachel Wood, good old Logan, he can be seen wearing a pin, so that must have been in the first season, yeah, on the lapel of his jacket, similar to Game of Thrones' Hand of the King. Ah, something to go back and look for, it's cute. But that's it. That's all we have written down. I was hoping there'd be more juicy stuff, but that's still some cool things to know. And that will be it for my podcast, right? You know, about 40 minutes, and uh, I'm happy with that. Made some progress. And on that note, enjoy whatever's left of your day. Certainly try and get some sleep. Big day tomorrow, as usual. It'll probably be around 12 hour mark. So I've just got to stay awake, and uh, I don't know if I'll be driving or not. I'm still not by myself. I'm getting better. It's becoming very much a routine, and I'm going all over the place. Fresh, waste, you name it. I'll get there one day and just be able to do it with my eyes closed. Not literally, because that wouldn't work, but the sentiment should be realized. And for now, I love you all. Take care.